Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're in Jeremiah chapter 20 today. Jeremiah chapter 20. We're continuing this series called The Person God Uses. You'll recall that in part one, we examined Jeremiah's calling as a prophet. We looked at his excuses that he offered in resistance to that call, but then the promises that God offered to him in response to those excuses. In part two, we explored Jeremiah's brokenheartedness over the state of his people. And we discussed five different types of people over whom we should be broken too. Well, today in part three, one thing that we're going to see all too clearly from this study in Jeremiah is that discouragement is a part of life. Discouragement, I think, comes most easily in those times, maybe, you know, when you do everything right and yet you still experience poor results You know, maybe you work hard, but you don't see any progress. You show up to practice every day. You give it your all, and yet you lose every game. As a parent, you spend time with your child. You invest in them. You pray for them. You take every opportunity to teach them, and yet that child still rebels. I mean, discouragement is kind of like you're Charlie Brown, and you've done everything to perfectly kick that football, and your life is Lucy, who every time pulls it away at the last second. Discouragement can eat away at your heart. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being nibbled to death by cats. That's what discouragement feels like. It makes us want to throw in the towel. It makes us want to say things that we really shouldn't say. In some instances, it even makes us want to shake our fist at God. And that's the state that we find Jeremiah in in today's passage. So let's read this text today. Jeremiah chapter 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says in verse 1, When the priest Peshur, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day when Peshur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Peshur, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says. I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealth of the city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah. They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon." Of course, we know from history that's exactly what happened. He says in verse 6, And you, Peshur, and all who live in your house will go into exile to Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied 
lies. But then things take a turn here in verse 7. You know, first six verses, he's speaking the oracle of God, but then he turns his attention to God. And this is where Jeremiah gets really personal. He says in verse 7, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. Listen to what he says in verse 11. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. So as you'll recall from part one, God called Jeremiah to speak a harsh message to a rebellious people who uh, had a not so pleasant uh, future coming. But you know what? He, he obeyed. In fact, on one occasion, here in this passage, we find that he, his message had so angered an assistant to the high priest and chief security officer for the temple, this dude named Pashur, that the man arrests Jeremiah, beats him, he puts him in the jail, locking him in stocks, which, you know, puts your body in a, in a weird position where you're, you're, you're contorted, you're writhing in pain. And the subsequent judgment pronounced on Pashur because of this, not pretty. So here we find Jeremiah, a man who is in deep, deep distress. Here's a guy who endured physical and emotional and spiritual, even, even professional anguish. When you think about it, he walked into deep despair, all because he did God's will. But it's Jeremiah's overcoming that discouragement that we want to focus on in our study this morning. In this particular passage, which is the last of his recorded laments, at least the, the laments in the book of Jeremiah, um, we find really all the highs and lows of human emotion. We see grief and joy. We see despair and delight. We see perplexity and praise. And Jeremiah reminds us that even a faithful servant of God can become discouraged. All right, which really brings us to the theological heart, the, the theme of this passage, what I like to call the big idea. And the big idea from this passage is this, that persecution for being true to God may drive us to despair, but knowledge of God's presence inspires hope. 
If you get nothing else from the message today, just remember that. Yes, persecution may bring despair because you've been true to God, and yet it's His presence with us that gives us hope. That's the big idea. So somehow Jeremiah found a way to live above his feelings and fulfilled God's will. And I think there's a lesson in there for all of us. And if I didn't think there was a lesson for all of us, then this sermon would be over and we would definitely beat the Methodist to the, to the restaurant for all of the white meat. Okay, I'm just checking to see you're still listening. Now, there's definitely a lesson in there for us. Uh, uh, four things specifically that I want us to look at. In those difficult times when we're discouraged, how do we overcome? Well, based on this passage, I think there's four different ways that we respond. All right, number one is this. Be honest. Tell God how you feel. I mean, look at verse 7. <clears throat> He's brutally honest here. He says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Now, Jeremiah did something right here, but Jeremiah also did something wrong here. Now, Jeremiah expressed his feelings to God honestly, which is the right thing to do. He, he for whatever reason, he felt deceived by God. Now, the word deceived, it means to be enticed or, or seduced. Now, obviously, God does not mislead people. He does not deceive or trick people. But somehow, Jeremiah felt that God had lured him into the ministry only to make him a laughingstock. He felt like a helpless victim who'd been seduced by by a deceptive lover. He felt ridiculed and, and offended. Plus, he really didn't think that his voice was making much of a difference. I mean, he kept crying out for the people to repent, yet they continued their downward spiral toward destruction and judgment. And that's important for us to, to note, church, that Jeremiah's lament, while it was intense, it was private. It was for God alone. It was not public. You see, Jeremiah didn't get online and, and verbally vomit on Facebook, you know, or blast out his grievance on Twitter, or post, you know, mean-spirited or sarcastic memes on Instagram. But there is an important thing that he did. You see, church, God wants us to talk to him even when we're angry, upset, when we're frustrated. Remember a fellow named King David? You know, the Psalms that he wrote expressed just about every emotional state known to man. Celebration, joy, fear, anger, confusion. In fact, let me give you a quick lesson in, in hermeneutics, you know, biblical interpretation. When you're reading the Psalms, Basically, the Psalms have two purposes for us, okay? The first one is how to recognize and praise God for His goodness, His holiness, for all of His wonderful, wonderful character attributes, all right? That's the first purpose. Recognize God for who He is and to praise Him. Here's the second one. The Psalms teach us how to express ourselves to God regardless of emotional state. So why not be honest with God about the way we feel? I mean, he already knows anyway, and so he wants us to tell the truth. Now, people are going to ask, you know, is it okay 
to be angry with God? Well, in response to that, first you got to remember, anger is an emotion, and sometimes the issue isn't so much with the emotion itself as it is with how we choose to respond to that emotion. Now, in the case of anger, let's just be honest, anger oftentimes is a self-centered emotion. We're angry, you know, maybe over something we perceive as a slight or maybe something we believe should have happened to us but didn't. You know, uh, uh, we get angry basically from not getting things the way we want. Now, on the other hand, sometimes anger is righteous, particularly when that anger comes after we observe an injustice being done. But what we do with such powerful emotions when they arise, that's the most important issue here. Now understand this, it is okay to express all of your emotions to God. So if you feel anger towards God, you should tell him. Guess what? God's a big God. He's big enough to handle it. He can handle your hurt. He can handle your anger. So tell him about it. He wants you to pour out your heart to him. He wants you to express what you're feeling. Now, you should note this. I did not say that it's okay to assassinate God's character. See, that's what Jeremiah did wrong here when he called God a deceiver. I mean, God is the embodiment of truth. There's no deceit in him. It is not in his nature. It is impossible for God to be deceptive. So don't make false claims about God's character. But it is okay to tell him everything that you're feeling and why. I mean, consider Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Didn't Jesus pour out his heart to God the Father in the garden. Lord, if there's any way this cup may pass from me. On the cross, didn't Jesus pour out his heart to the Father there? My God, why have you forsaken me? We ought to do the same. Hold nothing back when you pray. Tell the Lord exactly what's in your heart. Yes, even the bad stuff. And by pouring out these emotions, guess what? We're freed from their hold. We don't focus them towards others in a, in a hurtful way. And in the process, we actually end up entering into a, a more intimate embrace with the Lord. Now, here's the thing, you know, the, the truth is that God, He already knows the depths of our hearts. He knows our thoughts, our motives, our emotions, even before we speak them. So, you know, if we fail to be honest with God, then really we're deceiving ourselves. So be candid with God. Be candid in your prayers. I mean, if you're going to be honest with God, what's going to happen is you're going you're to develop a new sense of freedom. Um, you're going to have a, a, a deeper, more dependent relationship with God. And as a byproduct of that, we'll do a much better job of overcoming discouragement. All right, so, so far from Jeremiah's example, the first step that we observe in overcoming discouragement is to be honest. Tell God how you feel. Now, here's the second thing I want you to know. The second thing in overcoming discouragement, be obedient. Do what you're called to do. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Jeremiah writes, if I say, 
I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. See, because of Peshur's unjustified actions, Jeremiah was ready to let go of God and just leave him out of the conversation. But he just couldn't do that. I mean, Jeremiah wouldn't be at peace doing anything else. God's message was, was like a fire inside of him that couldn't be extinguished. He just couldn't shut up about it. You see, Jeremiah didn't preach because he had to say something. He preached because he had something to say. And not saying it would have destroyed him. Church, do you know why most pastors stay at it week after week, year after year? Why they keep a, 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 on the task of pastoring despite things that come with the job? Depression, sometimes rejection, rejection even, even anger at times. Why they press on? Well, you know, plain and simple, it's the call of God upon their lives that keeps them going. It's the power of His Holy Spirit that keeps them energizing. Years ago, when my dad and I were in evangelistic ministry together, uh, we actually had a board of directors. And uh, that board of directors was made primarily uh, of pastors. And it seemed like every month at board meeting, Somebody would come to board meeting, you know, with at least one ministry horror story to tell. You know, stuff like, I can't even make a long distance call without committee approval. You know, or, or they won't even let me turn on the air conditioning until May. I mean, this is real stuff. And I remember, you know, hearing all those stories and thinking to myself, I will never pastor a church. I will never pastor a church. Well, you know what? You have to be very careful about what you tell God you will not do. And uh, Christy can tell you, it wasn't too long after that that I was called into the pastorate. And right out of the gate, I ended up in a church that had a troubling situation. In fact, to make a, a long story, hopefully a little bit shorter, over the years, you know, Christy and I have seen enough flawed church, and we're all flawed, but we've seen enough flawed church people be mean to each other that I'm surprised we're not more jaded towards the church here in America. But do you know why I do pastoral ministry? Why I don't do something else? It's because I'm called by God. He has not rescinded that call upon my life. H.B. London, in his book, The Heart of a Great Pastor, writes this. He says, In those times when we stumble for our footing and the evil one whispers in our ear, why did you ever decide to be a preacher anyway? The right answer can only be, because I was called, you fool. <laughs> now, for all of us, there's a calling. No, not all of us are called to full-time vocational pastoral ministry, but we are all called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all called to serve the body of Christ. Now, for all of us, there's two aspects of that calling to ministry within the church. One's internal, it's more subjective. Uh, that call comes first from the heart. 
You know, and, and that's a result of the continu continued drawing of the, of the Holy Spirit. That's something that comes from, from deep within the innermost part of a person. Now, eventually, I mean, it just, it, it grabs hold of you. It becomes unshakable. It marks a person. And in time, that inward call of God is reflected outward. As the folks in your church body, uh, the Christian community begins to recognize that calling on your life. They see the gifts that God has given you. And so they affirm your gifts and your call. That's the, the external aspect. You know, that's, that's a more objective. But I got to ask you, I mean, you know, the, the name of this series is The Person God Uses. So I got to ask you, what is God calling you to do, church member? How does he desire for you to serve the body of Christ? And are you being obedient to that call? How do you plan on going from being a consumer to a contributor? Now, there's four questions I think we can ask. Well, there's probably a lot more, but four that stand out, I think, that we can use to evaluate whether or not we have a call to serve the church. And the first is, is there a longing to serve God with your whole heart? Do you have a longing to serve God with your whole heart? And if you don't, why? Second question, what spiritual gifts are evident in your life? Now, we all have different talents and abilities, but when we came to Christ in, in, in faith, we were all given at least one spiritual gift. What is that spiritual gift? And if you don't know what it is, I can help you with an assessment that'll help you figure it out. But you see, how you choose to serve the body of Christ is oftentimes determined on how you're gifted to serve. Third question, is there a lifestyle of integrity? Are you living a life that's above reproach? Fourth question, is there confirmation from God of your call? You see, church, ministry, ministry is just as much about being as it is doing, if, if not more. So when called, obey. Yes, obedience is difficult. Sometimes it's very painful. But disobedience is more so. So for us to overcome discouragement in the Christian life, first thing was, be honest, tell God how you feel. Second thing, be obedient, do what you're called to do. Here's the third step. Be watchful. Know that the Lord is with you. Things really kind of begin to take a turn here in verse 11. Verse 11, Jeremiah realized he wasn't alone. He writes, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. He's not on the losing side. Jeremiah was going to win in the long run because the Lord was for him. The Lord fought for him. God is going to deal effectively in his own way and in his own time with all of Jeremiah's enemies. Now, remember back in, in, in part one of this series, you know, we were talking about the different excuses that he offered to God, why he shouldn't be called to be a prophet. And he kind of balked at God's call by saying, well, I'm too young. And God responded by giving him a promise, a promise of his presence that says, do not be afraid of anyone, 
for I will be with you to deliver you. And so here, 19 chapters later in chapter 20, we see Jeremiah is remembering that promise. Now as newlyweds, this was, I'm just going to be honest with you, we've been married for 32 years, so. Um, yeah, <laughs> I thought, should I, should I tell them 32? Because then they'll kind of figure out how old I am and yeah, that doesn't matter. No, as newlyweds, Christy and I, uh, at our church back in Oklahoma City, we, we went through the, uh, through the Experiencing God study, the one that's authored by uh, uh, Henry Blackaby and, and Claude King. And I remember one of my takeaways from Experiencing God was that when we're in the midst of a difficult circumstance, we just, we kind of need to step away from the problem Look at it from God's perspective. We need to ask, God, you know, what, what are you doing here? God, what is it that you intend to teach me through this circumstance? We look at the big picture. We start to see things from a, a God's eye view. The problem is, oftentimes we don't. In our discouragement, we start to look inward. We focus on our own problems and, and our own frustrations and uh, on our own circumstances instead of focusing on Him, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We need to be reminded that He's with us. He has not abandoned us. And you know what? He doesn't simply accompany us. He carries us. Now, there's an old story that basically goes like this. The, the son of an Indian chief had reached the age when he had to prove that he was a man. And part of the testing required him to spend a night alone in a forest inhabited by wild animals. And all through the night, the animals gathered around the boy, growling, snarling, now, if he ran away and went back home, he would fail the test. Even though he was frightened, he was determined to stay. Finally, the dawn begins to break. The night shadows begin to disappear. The animals begin to creep away. And as the boy begins looking around in the morning light, much to his surprise, he sees his father stationed behind him with an arrow fixed in the bow. His father had been there the whole time to protect his son from harm. Now, can you imagine what sort of difference it would make in your outlook if you just remained conscious of the fact that, hey, God is with me? I mean, imagine going into a difficult board meeting with the knowledge that God is with you. You know, uh, picture yourself going into a very stressful presentation for your job, knowing that God is with you. Envision yourself uh, confronting a lost friend with the gospel, knowing that God is with you and that he's carrying you. You see, an awareness of his presence can really help us, can really help us accomplish meaningful things despite our discouragement. Because with that awareness of his presence comes courage and strength and perseverance. So living in the light of God's presence enables us to fight on despite our discouragement. So, so far we've seen, man, you want to overcome discouragement? Well, you're going to have to be honest. Tell God how you feel. 
be obedient, do what you're called to do, be watchful, know that the Lord is with you. But then here's number four, be worshipful. Praise God with your whole heart. Look at verse 13. Passage takes a really dramatic turn in verse 13. Jeremiah's despair has turned to joy, his defeated attitude to, to triumph, his dismay to courage. And what was it? Now, what was the key that unlocked the door to victory? It was praise. Verse 13, he triumphantly proclaims, sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. It reminds me of one of my, my favorite songs from back in the day. Uh, 1979 uh, <clears throat> was uh, recorded by the Imperials. And the words go something like, uh, when you're up against a struggle that shatters all your dreams and your hopes have been cruelly crushed by Satan's manifested schemes and you feel the urge within you to submit to earthly fears. Don't let the faith you're standing in seem to disappear. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord for our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you serve only to remind you that they drop powerless behind you. You praise him. Praise the Lord. Praise is that one weapon in the Christian's arsenal that Satan has no defense against. When we praise God, we're acknowledging that he's in charge, not us. That he can do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. But you know, praise God is, is a lot more than just acknowledging God for all the good that comes our way. <coughs> Excuse me. Praise is accepting from God everything that comes our way, both the good and the bad. The praise that we offer when things don't go our way is just as precious, maybe even more, than the praise we offer when things are going well. In fact, praise does four things, real quickly. Four things that praise does, okay? Praise recognizes a provider. It takes our minds off of our situation and it focuses our minds on God. It gives God the right to rule and to reign in our lives as he sees fit. It acknowledges that God knows a whole lot more about my situation than even I do. Remember what Isaiah said, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So our praise accepts that God can take all of that bad stuff and redeem it, make something beautiful out of it. So praise recognizes a provider. Here's the second thing praise does. Praise acknowledges a plan. See, a few chapters later, Jeremiah records God's words to Judah. And he tells them that in spite of, of the 70 years of captivity in, in Babylon that's coming, he says this, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. God weaves a, a, a tapestry of our lives. 
Now, we don't always get to see the finished product of what he's accomplishing. And sometimes in order to get to the end, I mean, we have to go through our share of difficulties. But throughout all of that, God is sovereign. He's in control. There is absolutely nothing that occurs in this life that he doesn't either cause to happen or allow to happen. And when we acknowledge that the present situation is actually part of God's plan, that yes, even that stuff that we perceive as bad, he can assign redemptive purposes to, and then we learn to praise him for that, then God's power is truly unleashed in our lives. And that's a power that can't be brought about by any, you know, any of our self-will or our ability or self-determination, only by God working in our lives. And so when we realize that God has a plan, we got two options. Obviously, we can fight it or we can embrace it. So praise recognizes a provider. Praise acknowledges a plan. But then praise accepts the present. See, praise is based on a total and joyful acceptance of the present as, as part of God's loving and perfect will for us. You know, it, it's not based on what we think should happen or based on something that we hope will happen in the future. It's, hey, let's be honest, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We praise God not just for the way we think, think things should be. Not for the, the way things should be. But we praise Him for the way they are right now. We praise Him for who He is and for who we are right now. So praise recognizes a provider. It, it, it acknowledges a plan. Praise accepts the present. And here's the, thing, the fourth thing. Praise releases the power. Now, we know that prayer opens the door to, to God's power to move into our lives. But the prayer of praise releases more of God's power than, than any other form of petition. Uh, Psalm chapter 22, one of David's psalms. David writes, but you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. God actually dwells within. He inhabits resides in the praises of, of his people. God's power and presence is near when we praise him. So the person that God uses is the one who knows how to overcome discouragement. And one of the keys to doing that is learning to praise God in all circumstances, even the discouraging ones. There's an old story. It says that one day the devil put up his tools for sale, marking each one of them for public inspection with an appropriate sale price and, and included in this diabolical tool set were hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lying, and of course pride. But set aside from these was a rather harmless looking but well-worn tool, discouragement. And it was marked at an extremely high price. Why such costly, costly a price, the question was asked. And the devil replied, because it's more useful to me than the others. 
I can pry open a person's heart with that when I can't get near him with the other tools. Once inside, I can make him do whatever I choose. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since few people know it belongs to me. Yes, the theme of the passage today is that persecution for being true to God may drive us to despair, but the knowledge of God's presence inspires hope. Overcoming discouragement is a mark of the person that God uses. And you can overcome discouragement. The question is, will you? Will you be honest and tell God how you feel? Will you be obedient and do what he calls you to do? Will you be watchful knowing that the Lord is with you? And will you be worshipful, praising him with your whole heart? There's a lot of folks that succumb to Satan's infernal tool of discouragement. I mean, who knows? You might be feeling the effects of that right now. I mean, maybe, maybe you're here today and you, you're feeling like you have got no value in God's eyes or anybody else's eyes. But I, I want you to consider this. In his book called, Would You Like Fries With That? Mike Silva wrote this. He said, if someone offered you a $20 bill, would you take it? I mean, what if that person wadded up the bill, threw it on the ground, would you still want it? What if he stepped on it and kicked it and even spit on it? Could you still go to the store and spend it? Well, the answer is yes. That bill has value because of what it is, not because of how it looks, where it's been, or, or what it's been used for. A crisp, clean $20 bill is worth the same amount as an ugly, old, abused one. Maybe you feel like you've been stepped on or beat up or kicked around. You may feel dirty, unworthy, useless, but I want you to be, <clears throat> excuse me, I want you to be encouraged by the $20 bill because no matter what you've been through, you still have value to God. And because you have value to Him, He's not done with you. He's got plans for you. He is still using every circumstance to mold you into the image of Jesus Christ. I love this quote from Billy Graham. He, he once said that mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. Now the ultimate demonstration of the value that God places upon you, well, that's the gift of his son, Jesus. Paul said in Romans 5.8 that God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what? Even if you were the only person ever created, the only person ever to walk the face of this earth, Jesus still would have chosen to die in your place. He would have paid the sin debt that you owe because God loves you that much. So when you're feeling unloved, when you're feeling dejected, unworthy, remember the blood of Jesus makes you worthy. 
Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now in the original biblical languages, that word for credited, it's, it's like an, an accounting term. So think of it this way. When you, by faith, trust Christ for forgiveness and for salvation and for eternal life, it's like the righteousness of Jesus is being deposited into your life's account. So now when God looks at you, he didn't see your past sins, your past hurts, your past failures. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, th I think that ought to provide a lot of encouragement for a discouraged heart today. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.